Hi, friends and colleagues. It's Nikki from Full Voice Music. On today's podcast, episode 94, we are continuing our conversation with Justin Peterson all about historical vocal pedagogy. Now, before I get to that, I would like to take a quick moment just to thank you, the listener, for making this podcast part of your day. We are quickly approaching a hundred thousand listens. I am so blown away by this global audience of voice teachers. And I would like to say hello and shout out to at this is Brit Bailey on Instagram. She sent me this lovely message the other day and it just made my day. So this is Brit sharing. I just wanted to say thanks for the great pod. Started listening just this week, and as a new, only teaching four years now, voice teacher who travels to my students, I particularly loved the traveling teacher episode. I love the warm-up offerings too, and feel like so many questions we forget to ask as teachers and choose to learn the hard way are answered listening to these episodes. So thank you, it's super appreciated, and I've already already recommended it to two other teachers and friends of mine. Britt, thank you so much for listening and thank you for sharing the podcast. I uh, These kind of comments just make my day and I really appreciate it. Now, for those of you listening, please do not hesitate to connect with me on the socials. If you follow at The Full Voice on Instagram, you can see a sneak peek into my teaching studio and the behind the scenes at Full Voice Music. And of course, this is where I share all our fun freebies too. So don't forget to tag us and share the fun in your teaching studio. And now, on to our interview. I have a question. What if, what if it's the student that is not meeting their voice where it's at? What if the biggest struggle is they want to be somewhere else in their vocal journey? How would you yeah. handle that gracefully? Well, that is the hardest, uh, one of the hardest things to do. And mm. just to tack onto your, your last point about the psychology and all of this and that, I'd say to you that that's all still part of the plant. Right, right. You know, I, I, no psychologist would ever say, you know, I really like these qualities in your personality, but these other ones are really awful. And <laughs> I, I, I really want you to get rid of these other qualities. You know, <laughs> like we would go, okay, I'll see you never again. Thanks for the session. And here's your 50 bucks. Um, but, but a voice teacher, you know, they're working for integration. And I mm -hmm. think the same is true for us. So I think when a person is, what they're experiencing is this dichotomy of, of, a future self yes and present self yes right? and the one of the best quotes that i have ever heard about this particular situation comes from byron katie who's out in in california and she says this reality is god and i love that statement because to me it says what's really happening is true not mm -hmm. what's in your mind not what's happened in the past that's memory and future is not here and we can't deal with the future because it's not here yet, mm. you know. So it's it's very much present focus, right? It's very much what, where we're at now. Because what happens is, is that when a person is not where they want to be, that is where all of those feelings of discontent begin to occur. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would say 
that happens both ways. That happens towards the future. In other words, a, a, a perceived self that is not mm-hmm. uh, materialized yet. Yes. And also, which, which happens very much, is in the damaged singer who looks back to skills oh. that they used to be able to have. Yes, the compare and, and despair. Right. So this idea of comparison to the future, like I always say, you don't want to scare yourself, get a future, right? (laughs) (laughs) You know, if you want to get really depressed, get a past, Mm. right? So this, this kind of looking forward and looking backwards as far as where is one, one is at on the spectrum is really something that the voice teacher has to be very, very delicate with Mm -hmm. when working with people, because we're not in the future. You know, we're just not there yet. And also there's a lot of fortune telling that goes on with this, which is also a cognitive distortion, right? I mean, you are, you don't know what's going to happen in the future and the past has already happened mm-hmm. and it's over. Right. You know, a lot of times students come in with the, with this, I'm, I would put myself in that category when you can do something really well and you suddenly cannot do it well anymore, you will look back to your past and mourn what you have lost. And if you don't move through that in the future or where you are now, it can hold you back because you'll constantly be looking back for something that you've lost rather than appreciating where you're at now vocally. And I think this happens for all of us as we get older, you know, yes. as, as the aging singer um, begins to age up into their uh, later years of life. They can look back and say, gosh, I can't do what I did when I was in my 20s. I can't do what I did when I was in my 30s or my 40s. But that, that is true. But there are things you can do now that are so much deeper and so much more beautiful and so much more meaningful than what they would have been in your 20s. And I find that a lot of times people are stripping away the excesses of that kind of youthful, maybe skill or whatever as they get older. And they're simplifying. Make it yeah. sim- And it becomes much more moving. It's much more moving to watch. I love yeah. what our Did I answer your question? Did I answer yeah, your question? No, I think you okay. you did. It was beautiful. I love okay. what our friend we we have a mutual friend, Brian Lee. Shout out to Brian. I love what he says. I think he wrote this beautiful blog about, you know, the aging voice is like a fine wine. It just gets better and more mellow as it ages. And I've 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 used that with some of my older students and I'm like this is this is a beautiful instrument with so much experience like let's right. celebrate that and it's easy for me to say right. Right. Well, what about that? Or what about that beautiful vowel sound that you've suddenly right. found, right? So it doesn't. It's that's again. I think the youthful exuberance of singing sometimes places values on high notes, right? Wow. How loud high notes, which historically was not part of the oldest bel canto training, right? So again, I'm bringing this back to history. Mm. But if you look at the earliest compositions, like even Handel, like Handel's music, mm-hmm. Handel rarely goes up to, you know, never rarely goes up to C, a high C for soprano, right. and especially never lays there. So, <laughs> you know, you're, you're coming up and you're coming down. So the, the, the values of the voice of that time were built upon flexibility mm-hmm. and never pushing the range of, you know, the extension of range to be extreme. Mm-hmm. And yet imagine people still wept when they heard that music. They, they still cried. They stir, they'll still were deeply moved when they heard, you know, for example, like La Chakubyanga. And they mm. could, you know, that's not an aria that goes up high or lives high, but with so much pathos and so much expression. So I think as we get older, we sort of, we shudder or we shudder some of that stuff and we say, okay, I'm not going to value that. I mean, those are silly things of youth. I'm going to value different things now as an artist and as a musician. So that's our t- job too as teachers is to help our students, you know, with the adjustment of their artistic values as well as mm-hmm. when they get older. 
Mm-hmm. That change has to be the one constant for the singer and the teacher's life. Yes. And that's scary and horrible because we like, we feel safe when things are locked down and secure. And it's really scary when things are not locked down and secure. Well, our body is not locked down and secure, friends. Like, it's just not. And so when we respect the voice and we respect the body, it will, again, the plant will be just fine Mm. if we respect the plant. That's my takeaway. Respect the plant, right? (laughs) Teacher takeaway. I think you need a new page on your on your website which has the your quotes in t-shirt form. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it just, you know, I find that when I didn't respect my voice as a singer, that's when I got into trouble. Mm. Oh, so you know, true. When when you when you go for that end result like we were talking about, when you go for the the thing you're trying to do, you're going to try and do it any way you can do it. You know, it doesn't matter which muscles you pull into the game. You're mm-hmm. just going to try and do it. You know, Alexander, FM Alexander called that end gaining. End this idea. Gaining. Oh. Yeah, it's a great term. I use it all the time. This idea that when we do something, when we go to do something, we're oftentimes not conscious of the things that we are physically doing in order to accomplish that goal. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes we are overcompensating to do something oh. uh, because we're trying to get to the result. We're trying huh. to, you know, like you said, some future self. Right. I mean, for years, I thought if I just get my breathing right, I'll get my high notes. (laughs) So, you know, you just spend hours in the practice room like, okay, okay. You know, you're you're just trying desperately to make this thing work. And you're like, hmm. So, you know, and it doesn't matter what you do. And you're trying to do every muscle, everything you can do to get what it is that you want to do. And again, lack of patience with the process in a desire to get the result faster than the body can literally give it to you. And that is so hard to do. And can I tell you why it's hard? Comparison. Because we compare ourselves to someone else. We look at else and we look at their ability and we look at their particular skill level, even if they're of our own age. And we go, gosh, I can't do that. I really want to do that. And I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And so rather than being patient with our own journey and our own particular development, Mm -hmm. we look at someone else and we try desperately to do what it is that they're doing. Um, Here's another quote that I love. Comparison is the thief of joy. Oh, yes. Thank you. It is. It is. And I, I, you want to get, you know, like I tell, I tell students all the time, you want to be miserable? Look at somebody else's work. Mm-hmm. Like just, just and then and then compare yourself and say, okay, wow, I'll never do that or I'll never be that. Well, we're also I we also look at their end game. We look at right. we look at where you know years and years of work, and we don't see the effort and suffering that went into that. Oh. We just see their yeah. end game and go, well, I'm not there. So true. I always, I, I have an analogy for that too. I call that the Olympics uh, phenomenon, which is yeah. that we see the final event, right? Mm-hmm. We see Michael Phelps swimming and winning all those gold medals mm-hmm. and we go, wow, that's so great. We celebrate that moment. What we don't see is Michael Phelps getting up at four in the morning, going to the pool, <laughs> eating the diet, having the bad uh, training session, going, you know, coming back, all of the sort of grunt work, right, Mm -hmm. that goes into it. So we have this perception that you just kind of get in the pool, right? Mm -hmm. You just do it and you just do it. Or if you're a singer, for example, oh, you're just born to do that. You just just did it. You know, you just could do that. Mm -hmm. And we don't see, we don't see all the things that are kind of holding up that skill no matter what. You know, how many hours, for example, 
as a child singer myself, how many hours of music did I listen to as a child in order to be able to sing? Oh, a yeah. lot. A lot. So subconsciously or consciously, I had no idea that by listening and listening and listening and listening and listening as a child, like like I was, that I was putting in the hours. That I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just listening to my favorite albums over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And so that insinuated itself into my ears. And yeah. so if you didn't listen to music, if you didn't listen to recordings or things like that, of course, you're going to be a little bit of a disadvantage because that's been not been part of your uh, development. Mm-hmm. Um, going back into our historic mm-hmm. pedagogy, the teachers that were groundbreaking in their time, mm-hmm. who do you who do you reference the most, or what are your top referenced yeah. historic teachers? Okay, so I'm going to spread a wide net. I'm going to cast a wide yes, net here, please. Um, so the first people that I would probably put up are Tozi and Mancini, okay. who were the first sort of, they were both castrati, and they were writing oh. books largely for castrati wow. uh, on the teaching and the singing of their time. And they're really kind of the first uh, pedagogical texts that we have on singing. Although we did have one in the 1500s, I think written by Ludovico Zacconi, which was how to teach yourself how to sing, which was, I kind of love that, right? Like teach yourself singing 1500s edition. (laughs) Okay. That that would be a very cool book club. Yeah. 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 Right. Uh, Teach yourself how to sing. Cool. Um, and, and the Tosian, I, I think the Mancini especially is to me, one of the most interesting texts, um, he was writing that book, I want to say the late 1700s, I want to say 1774, 1775, somewhere in there. So right before we got our independence, America, um, <laughs> he was writing that book. And again, uh, one of the things I could talk about Tosi and Mancini for a long time, one of the things that's very vexing to the modern reader of these writers is the things that are omitted, hmm. right? So the things that they don't talk about can be very, and so we have a particular God of the gaps theory (laughs) where we like to plug God into the gaps where we don't have an explanation for something. We'll just say, well, just God did it. So (laughs) when we have something, when we have something that's missing in pedagogy, we kind of do the same thing. Sure. We'll say, well, they were doing this, which is completely, we can't do that. That's not very, you know, you cannot reverse engineer Hmm. to a previous time that you were, you didn't live in because we don't know. We We don't don't know. know. But again, it's that idea of what were the assumptions. One of the things that's a real glaring omission in many of these earliest pedagogy texts is breathing. Really? There very little in this in the manner of what should we do? How do we take a breath? What do we do with the breath once we've taken it? Hmm. How do we, you know, a system of breathing? There's hmm. almost very little to nothing in a system of breathing on on for singing. We do get admonitions about not breathing high. Right. Okay. Don't take a breath high in the shoulders mm-hmm. or don't breathe in the middle of a word. Okay. But largely, you know, if you look at these texts in macro, there's very little in the way of what to do and how to breathe. And again, I would say that goes on what I was saying earlier about assumptions. Mm. Obviously, if it's omitted, the people and the writers and the singers of that time, obviously, were operating on a completely different set of assumptions about singing than we are today. Right. 
we today think about breathing as the, oh my gosh, it's everything, right? I mean, sometimes when vocal faults occur, a teacher will say, well, just fix your breathing and it'll all be great. But, <laughs> but, but then I always wonder, I always wonder when these texts are, you know, when these oldest texts are talked about, when there's nothing in breathing, you also look at the compositions that were being written at that time. Hmm. Long-winded, melismatic, coloratura singing passages that went on for a long period of time. How do those two things line up? How do you have this composition that's like long-winded, and then you have no remarks in the pedagogical text about breathing or how to do it or what how it's done? So that makes me curious as a person. I'm like, well, what, what were they thinking, and how did they solve those problems, and what did they do to build those incredible breath supply techniques that they had at that time. Um, missing elements, right? So, so that's part of my kind of interest too. It's like, again, that's, they were fish in different water. So they, what did they know and how did they, how did they do what they did? I have ideas about it. Um, but I, they're obviously only theories and ideas, but, um, and my, my theory is that they worked for a very long time on long notes, mm, right? long tones. Yeah, they worked on long tones, just like in many instrumentalists still do that, where they just sang different vowels on long notes and gradually built up their stamina wow. by singing. Mm -hmm. So they weren't doing over breathing, you know, exercises or anything wild. They were just standing very nice and tall, you know, everything that we would tell a student today, and then just practicing long notes. Now, I think that's funny because in our own time today, if you know Joseph Stemple's work, who does the vocal function exercises, one of the exercises that he does to bring voices back to health is, guess what, long tones, mm. right? He has them do a very forward kind of nasal sound mm -hmm. on a long, as long as you can sing. Wow. For as long as you can hold the note, which brings the voice and the, and the breath and the, and the vocal cords into kind of a symbiotic relationship. So that to me is fascinating, right? That whole, I could write, I've written a lot about that in my blog. Mm -hmm. And then once we start to get into the late uh, 18th century, another woman that I have found really interesting is Anna Maria uh, Celloni. She was one of the first female pedagogues mm -hmm. from the late 18th century. And I think that's so cool that we have this woman at the forefront of pedagogy during the time when all these other men were writing, here she is out there writing her stuff. I think that's so cool. I just think that's awesome. And her book is wonderful. Her book is a wonderful book. Mm. So I really recommend her book as an early example of good pedagogy from a female uh, a pedagogue. Okay, I'm going to put that. I'm going to put that book on our podcast page. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's so interesting. Book. Yeah, Grammatica is the name of it. Grammar, believe it or oh. not, that's the name of the book. Yeah. Uh, Osia. Uh, Il Regole di Ben Cantare, I think it's so. The Rules of Singing Well, I think is the name of it. I love if I remember. That. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, she's great. And then once we get into the 19th century, that's, uh, that's when we have our big pedagogical flux. Mm. You know, up until that time, all of the training that had occurred was largely done by castrated, uh, castrated men, right? Mm -hmm. So those men began to die out by the middle, you know, by the early 19th century, right? When They're did teaching with them. When did they discontinue the, that practice? I want to say, well, we know that Mozart even wrote for Castrato. Um, right. So that was going up into the late, um, going up into the late 1800s, we even know of some Castrati on recording in the 20th century. So they were still, I mean, I don't know if it was like a practice per se, but mm -hmm. it was something that largely had fallen out of favor, definitely fallen out of favor by the early 1800s. Right. Um, but, uh, 
these men died out. Mm. And so training kind of died with them. Mm -hmm. And so with that also came uh, actually very much a, a influence of the Germans. The Germanic sort of compositional style, which, which was built on a big, thick orchestra, sort of took over and very much influenced the Italians. If you look at Italian orchestration of the early mm, 1800s, it's very sparse. Mm. Like even... Like even Bellini's opera Norma, which was composed in the around 18, middle of the 1820s, I think, uh, very sparse or orchestration. You know, if, if you looked at it, it's almost like arpeggiated bass lines and like a pizzicati strings on the offbeats. So real simple stuff. Even in the most dramatic scenes, it's it's very sing it's it's not difficult to sing over. Mm -hmm. But as the orchestra, uh, orchestral tam textures sort of thickened, it got really hard because even doubling a part of an instrument creates a thicker texture for a singer then to have to deal with. So Garcia, Mr. Garcia came along and he was the son of a tenor who uh, was very celebrated uh, personality of his time. And Garcia's sort of whole modus operandi for his work was largely scientific in nature. So he was sort of the first pedagogic, pedagogical writer to try to combine this sort of empirical old school stuff with this more modern scientific oriented schooling. Hmm. And so he, a lot of people say he was, you know, he integrated. I really think he started something new. Hmm. I, I think of Garcia as the end of something and the beginning of something else. I don't think of him as a continuation of something from the, the 18th century. I, th I literally do think of him as the new 19th century pedagogy. Um, which was very different from what had come before. Um, if nothing more than in the sort of copious sort of anatomical drawings and, and all of that, which of course, from my perspective, <laughs> from the 21st century, can lead to a singing that becomes very self-conscious, right? Because mm -hmm. then suddenly you're always figuring out parts. Well, parts uh -huh. were not something that the 17th century singer had to deal with, or even the 18th century singer had to deal with. So now we know what all the parts are, and then suddenly we thought, oh, well, if we know what the parts are, can we control them? Can we make them work better? <laughs> so troublesome, troublesome. So uh, Garcia sort of stands at the, at, the, at the bridge of that old empirical schooling with this new scientific uh, era. And so Garcia is sort of the harbinger of everything that was going to come after. Wow. Um, so I think of him as a giant in that regard. And we look back on him now because of our scientific minds and go, oh God, he was amazing. But, you know, obviously someone in the 17th century or 18th century might have been like, what? Right. What are you talking about? Right. They would have been like, what are you doing? So uh, Garcia is a fascinating person. I'm, I'm a person, I have to say, who I'm very careful about who I venerate hmm. because it can it can be very dangerous. Right. Because you can let yourself get carried away. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. you can become, you become, you become a little blinkered and you think, well, they did everything right. They were perfect. Nothing they ever said was wrong. And I just kind of have to be very careful about that because I don't think that leads to an honest, uh, assessment of any pedagogical text. You know, you want to look at people as human beings, just the same as we are today. Um, but I think that there were pieces of Garcia's life that were fascinating um, that were – he always had a scientific mind. And mm -hmm. I think that he, he, he had that even as young as uh, 
as a young man when he was working with his father because again he found his studies irksome so he <laughs> so, so he was like i want science you know and so he really went off into that world because that was the world that he was interested in he he studied anatomy he worked with uh, he worked with um uh, patients with laryngeal difficulties and things like that um and then as far as you know the lampertes were kind of a i guess a co Collaborate, not collaborators, but they were kind of in tandem at the time. So it was kind of like the Garcias and the Lampertis. And I'm, I'm just doing a broad overview here. Mm-hmm. And then I would say in the 20th century, somebody who has had a really profound effect on me that I really loved reading their work so much, and I come back to it all the time, is Herbert Witherspoon. Really? Yeah, I cannot get enough of Herbert, Herbert Witherspoon. I am just a big, and if I had a big, you know, fan club button to put on me put on my shirt shirt it would be herbert with this if you had a time uh, machine you'd you'd yes. uh, you'd go back and talk to him yes i definitely would i okay. definitely would because we i just love his values i love his sort of views on the voice i love his views on on his own time that he lived in because much of what he's written about in 1925 is so much still with us today. Uh, he's it's, it's real as tomorrow. I always tell people read Witherspoon because his book is as current to me as Mm -hmm. today. Um, in the the things that he was dealing with and the, and the perspectives that he had. So I love Herbert Witherspoon. I love him so much. Um, a fantastic person who really struggled with their own voice. You know, he was, he was a bass. He had a really terrifically difficult time with his own instrument. He went to Europe. He studied with everybody. He wrote everything down. He then sang at the Metropolitan Opera, had great success as a singer, then became a teacher and then ran the Metropolitan Opera for six weeks before he unfortunately passed away at his desk. Uh, He had had a heart attack at his desk at the Met. Yeah. Wow. So so tragic. uh, Yeah. Oh. Definitely, but 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 his legacy is to me in his wonderful book uh, singing, which was published in 1925, and it's just a wonderful book. And really, to me, and not only to my mind, but also to the mind of Edward Foreman, who's another scholar that I really love. He's written a lot about historical pedagogy. Probably one of the best texts on singing since Tozzi and Mancini. So, in a way. Foreman, this uh, this writer, puts him in the same camp as Tozzi and Mancini. He sort of says that Witherspoon is the sort of how-to manual wow. of Tozzi and Mancini. And I'm like, oh, that's wonderful. So they're kind of like a little trilogy of books. There's Tozzi, Mancini, and then Witherspoon. This yeah. is so interesting. And I, I love the idea because, you know, in, in the forums and when you're talking to your colleagues, everybody's always asking about, well, you know, what's the latest and greatest book on voice, teaching voice, voice production, the science, the anatomy. But how, how valuable it would be to invest in some of these classic texts yes. and be able to experience them with an open mind and then look at the new texts that are coming out. And there's some wonderful books that have come out now, but how powerful, what a tool, what a, what an appreciation. And now for the My Music Staff Minute. Hey everyone, Erin here to talk to you about the importance of building your studio's presence in your local community. People in your neighborhood may know about your business on a surface level, But to really make yourself distinguishable from your competitors, it's important to be active in your community. There are many different ways to make your business stand out, 
both online and offline. Be active in your community and bring attention to your business by hosting fundraisers or sponsoring community events. Find a cause that speaks to you and see how your studio can contribute. This can happen in many small or large gestures, such as donating a prize pack for a charitable giveaway or co-hosting a public event with a local business. Partnering with other businesses broadens your audience and spreads the word about your business in ways you may not have been able to achieve before. For example, if a local bakery and music studio partnered together for a morning performance at the bakery, the studio would become exposed to the bakery's customers. Secondly, having an active presence on social media is imperative to your business's success. Nowadays, when people are looking to learn about a service, they typically head to the internet. Make sure that your social media pages have updated and engaging content about your services, and be sure to actively monitor your business channels to answer any questions from current and potential customers. Don't be afraid to ask your existing clients to leave a review on your social media pages. A couple of stellar reviews could be the tipping force that convinces a family to join your studio. Joining local community groups on social media channels, like Facebook, is another great way to market your business and engage with potential customers. Here you can share information about your studio while connecting with new members of your community, hitting two birds with one stone. If your studio offers something that others don't, make sure to emphasize that skill by sharing your unique expertise. Start your 30-day free trial of My Music Staff today at www.mymusicstaff.com. Stay tuned for next week's tips and tricks on the My Music Staff Minute, exclusively on the Full Voice Podcast. Look at the new texts that are coming out, and there's some wonderful books that have come out now, but how powerful, what a tool, what, a, what an appreciation. To that, I actually have a wonderful quote that I'd love to share oh, with your listeners. Yes. So this, this is a quote from C.S. Lewis. Okay. And it's one of the, one of, again, I have so many quotes, I love them. This is one of my favorites, and it speaks to what you're talking about. It's a good rule after reading a new book, never to allow yourself another new one till you have read an old one in between. Love that. Yeah. If that is too much for you, you should at least read one old one to every three new ones. Wow. Not, of course, that there is any magic about the past. People were no cleverer than then than they are now. They made as many mistakes as we, but not the same mistakes. They will not flatter us in the errors we are already committing. And their own errors, being now open and palpable, will not endanger us. Two heads are better than one, not because either is infallible, but because they are unlikely to go wrong in the same direction. To be sure, the books of the future would be just as good a corrective as the books of the past, but unfortunately, we cannot get at them. The only palliative is to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds. Wow, that is so inspiring. Isn't that I wonderful? Love it. I love that. Oh, that is probably one of the the loveliest teacher takeaways that we could all enjoy. They're great. Love that. I love that. You know, I'm going to be that person in the forums recommending all the old books now. <laughs> just, just to be like, well, you know, this book was released in 1925. <laughs> right, right. But I think the idea is that, you know, we can't get to the books of the future. 
No. We can't get to them. And they would be our corrective today. Mm-hmm. So the only resource or recourse we have to get to a correction is to go to the books of the past. Mm. It's the only way we can correct our own place in the world that we live in. I think it's so helpful to know that voice teachers a century ago were probably swimming as we feel overwhelmed, you know? Absolutely. 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 You know, I, I often talk about one of my favorite, uh, again, you have so many things that are my favorites, right? You're just, just, they'll be like, Justin Peterson. They'll be like, Justin Peterson. My, my epitaph will read, Justin Peterson. He liked things. <laughs> right? Because I'm just like, I love this. I love that. I love that. But, you know, the idea of, 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 of connection and who we are, I often share this uh, article that was actually covered in, again, Herbert Witherspoon's book which was, you know, we can only live in the time that we live in. Mm. You know, we can only live where we are now. And I really think that's so true. And I think that one of the dangers of history is that we can become a little too um, rosy about it, right? Mm. Like we can think, oh, well, it was just better and we don't know it. And that's the other danger, right? So if we look back and we can mock or we can look back and go, oh, it's just not as good as it was back then. And that's also dangerous, Mm -hmm. right? So, So I think we need to be able to always put history in its, its place and its its places to help us today. Yeah. Not for us not for us to look back and go, oh, if it would just be so much better if we did this or that. Boy, you know, I poof, it's it's that's a dangerous place to go. And I've seen many people go there in the singing community mm-hmm. where they'll hold on to the past and they'll say, well, you know, we're not doing what we did a hundred, you know, fifty years ago, hundred years ago, da 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 da. That's that could very well be true. Yeah. But but that sort of denial of the present moment, I guess that's the thing of the other takeaway, is when you just deny the present moment, you just create misery for yourself. Oh. Because, because even though I love history and I love all of this information, I try to always remember that I live in 2019. <laughs> right? I don't live in 1785. I don't live back then. So I, I can only infer what I'm inferring based on what I've, what I've read. So um, it's very dangerous, though, to, to go the route of, you know, because that, what that does is that creates that fixed mindset, right? That Carol wow. Dweck talks about this idea of, well, it's, this is closed and there's nothing new coming in here. Mm-hmm. Our very good our very good friend, um, Michelle Marquardt DeVoe, has this fabulous quote that I literally have like tattooed on my back here. We were, <laughs> we were, talking, about, we were, we were talking about lineages, right? Because at one time, a lineage was a way that you would ask that you assured that you had learned something, mm-hmm. right? Because you had descended from a lineage. So it was really a way for a voice professional or a singer to say, I know what I'm talking about because I connect to this person who connects to this person who connects to this person. Mm. And so there was a lineage there. And and Michelle really aptly described this as, well, lineages can also lead to inbreeding. And that's very true, <laughs> right? Because, because it becomes a closed system. Right. Right. Those, those sort of pedagogical mindsets become closed. And so anything that's new or innovative or that comes in that's different is very much a threat because mm-hmm. it comes within the, in the, you know, the fixed sort of world that that pedagogy is built upon. So uh, that's where it can become dangerous. You know, mm-hmm. you do have to kind of I, I want to say an open mind and people don't like that, but. You, you do, in a way. You have to, our objective mind, let's say. I love what you said there. I, I, f- I find, too, when, 
It's hard. It's hard to, teaching is challenging. We have to set our egos aside. We're constantly being inundated with new information and new ideas, which shakes us and makes us feel vulnerable and questions our abilities as teachers. There's just so much that can rattle us every single day. You know, the student that comes in and, you know, is having the bad day to the, to even the struggles with our own voice uh you know we're we we're we're teachers but we're, we're also singers and our our instruments we've had you know a lifetime of drama and 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 oh, yeah. challenges uh i love so much that you've shared this this has been such a fantastic conversation now Yay. but i can't let you go until we talk about warm-up of the week now the warm up of the week. <laughs> bum, 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 bum. <laughs> so you told me previously before our conversation that Mesa de Voce is your go-to or one of your go-tos. So yes. talk talk about how you approach that. And I would love to get how you approach that with different ages. Yes. So the Mesa de Voce for those people I'm sure I I think everybody knows what it is, but it is a starting of a pitch at a very soft dynamic and then crescendoing that pitch to a very full dynamic, a forte or so, and then bringing it back again to a piano dynamic. Now, a lot of people will say, well, that's very that's a very advanced exercise. And I would absolutely concur and I would absolutely agree. However, that does not mean that the exercise cannot be varied and still be taught. So, you know, it's again, it's an idea of context and it's also an idea of uh, an issue of proportion. Mm-hmm. So, okay, here I go with my pedagogy again. In Isaac, in Isaac Nathan's wonderful mid 18th century book, Misurgia Vocalis, that's his little book, he has a page of examples of Mesa di Voce and they're all different types of Mesa di Voce. And uh, there's a legend in the voice training world that I believe was Bernacchi gave one of his students a uh, page of exercises and said, you know, do this page of exercises. And he did them for six years. And then the student came back and said, okay, I'm really tired of these exercises. Can't you please give me, oh, it's corpora. It was corpora (laughs) and Bernacchi, I believe. And said, I'm sick of these exercises. What, you know, and finally the corpora said, go forth and sing my child. You're the greatest singer in the world. I kind of think that those exercises that were on that piece of paper were probably Mesa di Voce exercises. Mm. And so the exercise is variable in the sense that it can, piano for every voice is different, forte for every voice is different. So within the scope of the voice, the individual voice that you're working with, it can be an exploratory, creative way to start the voice with a little bit of sound and then crescendo a little bit and then bring it back. Mm-hmm. You can slice it in half. Yes. Right? So you you can slice the Mesa di Voce in half and just do the crescendo part or right. do the diminuendo part. And one, one of the things you can look for is does the vowel go funky? Mm. In other words, does the vowel go up or does the pitch mm. drop suddenly? Does it get sharp? Does it get flat? So we're really kind of in training them to separate vowel and pitch from volume. 
so that the vowel stays the same and the pitch stays the same. And now the volume tab is being played with. I like I do the Redian sort of pitch valve volume a lot with my mm -hmm. with my studio. That these are the elements that we can control, right. that we can play with. And so the messa di voce is sort of like keeping a consistent vowel and pitch, and then sort of taking the knob on the volume and just playing with it up and down. And I would say that any practice of the exercise, even in a rudimentary way, can be very beneficial mm -hmm. for a student. In fact, it's one of Ingo Tietz's top five warm-ups. So I did not know that. Yes, it's one of his top fives. Mm -hmm. He actually also uses vowels with it, which I also like. So you can start on a very quiet E vowel and then maybe go to an ah, mm. right, as it gets louder and then bring it back to E as it gets quieter again. Those can be great little training wheels for youngsters. Yeah. So you can do like ooh-ah or oh-ah. As the, as the forte is, is reached, then you can open it up to the ah vowel. And then again, close it back up. So that they are, then they're changing vowel and volume, and the pitch is staying the same. So those can all be, you know, clever little lever pulls, right? We're going to pull this lever. Well, let's pull the vowel lever. Let's pull the, the intensity lever, and let's pull the pitch lever, right? So you those little levers. I love it. <laughs> People can't see Justin, but he's like with his arms. He's like reaching up and down as if he's doing like you know shoulder presses at the gym <laughs> which would be which would be a very good cue like a, a physical cue which would maybe help a lot of our students like we yeah. we have to put movement and visualization yeah. i love that I and love it's that. also a wonderful way to determine i have to say because i just you could spend a lifetime in Mesa I could literally spend a lifetime in Mesa de Voce. I really, really could. And I'm not the only person who felt that way. There's another pedagogue that I shared with some the, a couple days ago that was like, I cannot talk enough about the Mesa de Voce. Like they were some, <laughs> some 18th century person, right? I was like, I feel you, brother. I feel you. I'm with you. But you know, the thing that you can, you can do so much wonderful stuff with the Mesa de Voce. For example, as the sound gets louder, is does the student change their physical alignment? Oh, does, yes. You know? Does the body position change? Does the face change? Does the does there more tension into the system? These are I, all things that are able to be watched. I love that you said that because one of the things that I noticed with some of my students is that they a lot of tension and extra muscles get involved mm -hmm. in this. Yes. And it's so important to watch your students. I have, yes. I have seen jaws get so tight and I have seen, I have seen shoulders get involved and hands Absolutely. clenching. And it's like, Hey, let's shake that out a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, but I think, again, this is the glory of the Mesa de Voce, as well as the long tone, because there are so many things you can watch in what mm -hmm. a student's doing and how they sing one note, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. how they prepare to sing that one note. Do they, you know, raise their shoulders? Mm -hmm. Is there any physical affectations that occur with that? What's the vowel sound as they start the note? Does the note start properly? You could literally spend, as the Italians did, months on just one note at a time. Yes. And perfect one note at a time. That level of attention and detail that you can really focus in on. People are always so anxious to get into the five-tone scale. And I'm like, yes, that's great. But let's figure out how the whole thing is just starting with one sound, one little note, one little pitch, and one vowel. It's a, there's a world of observation that can go in on a single note. 
I love using single note like humming warm-ups and vowel exercises with my small group classes as kind of as a meditative let's kind of sink into our bodies and just let's just calm down children (laughs) i honestly would say if you are in a situation with a student who is very anxious yes or is or is charged up long note singing Hmm. is the way to go Mm -hmm. just long notes will calm them down Mm -hmm. because there's not a lot to deal with there there's just not a lot to deal and it settles the mind yes and one teacher that i had in new york city was said something really that i love that i oftentimes will use in my own studio when i came in you know and it was in new york i mean new york is very stressful so you're wanting to get the subway and you're trying to get Mm -hmm. that uh, and you've got to find the street Uh, so you come into lessons in this sort of state of like uh, right and he said, okay, I got to get the New York out of you. <laughs> right? Like, I just got to get you into the room and like calm down. So, you know, things like long notes or messa di voce are a wonderful frame for calm, which I'm I a big that. fan of. Well, and, big we, fan. and we often, we often as teachers, we forget that our students are coming in, they've had a day, they, you know, they're tired, they're hungry, they've had, you know, something happen. And yet we're so, we're so eager to jump into their repertoire or, or get them really busy. And, and how, how more, how much more productivity would we have in a lesson if we could just allow them even just a few extra minutes of just settling in. And I know sometimes, uh, you know, we don't have that luxury, right? We, we need, we need to get them through their piece, but I, I'm, that is something I certainly with my kiddos when I, I have this long hallway to my room and I, and mm. I, I refer to it as the student assessment hallway. Cause as we walk down the hallway together, I'm watching them as they're walking. I'm kind of gathering, you know, from how they're talking to me, you know, if they're coming in and they're talking five thousand miles a minute or, mm. or if they're right. really low energy like that that you know little walk to the end of the hall kind of sets me up for where we're gonna start if i had a if you based on what you're just saying if you had the opposite situation right Mm -hmm. let's say you have the student who needs to be ramped up right gets gets then staccati yeah yeah you know i mean two halves of the same little coin you know long Mm -hmm. tones and staccati notes Mm -hmm. are a great way to met to manage energy in a lesson yes yes you know, so musical means of, of, of getting to a physical uh, aliveness in the body or a calmness in the body. I love it. Simple, simple, but musical, yeah. right? Just simple musical ideas. Um, so I don't think, I hope I didn't interrupt you there. No, ah! no, I love that. I, I, <laughs> okay. I do that. Uh, I use, I call it, so it's a staccati exercise, but it's like laughing. So we go, if, especially yeah. if, they're, if they're really bummed out, right? You know, you got the kids, they're just like a little dark. So I make them do the, but I always tease them and I challenge them. I'm like, okay, I want you to laugh, but it is your saddest laugh ever. (laughs) And of course they're trying to make it sad, which makes them laugh, which makes lightens the mood. So again, a little messing with their heads a little bit, but it works and we get a productive lesson. Yeah. Yeah. We really do control the energy in lessons, you know, voice teachers. We really do. And, and that's a big, you know, we can use music. Mm-hmm. It's. I mean, hello. We can use music mm-hmm. to facilitate energy in a mm-hmm. lesson. You know, if it's if it's sluggish, go faster. If it's too fast, slow down. I mean, mm-hmm. s- simple little musical ways mm-hmm. of 
of solving problems, right? It's great. Oh. That's why that's why I'm like, can we solve, can we make the voice better by using musical ideas? I think we can. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Oh, Justin. Oh, thank you so much for these wonderful conversations uh, and all this wonderful historic information. Again, these are... Uh, th- this is so helpful and uh, so many teacher takeaways and I encourage my uh, listeners to check out your blog. Um, I'm going to put links on our podcast page to all of your information and as I as I always ask our my guests, are you are you open to people reaching out with questions? Oh, I would love to. I love people. So <laughs> I would love to talk. <laughs> I love people. I, I do. I love people and I love people that want to share things. I have wonderful people who contact me all the time and ask questions and we have wonderful dialogues. They teach me things. So I, you know, I'm open. I'd love it. I'd love those kinds of things. Okay. Well, I'm going to put all your contact information on the podcast page. And uh, if, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you must check out Justin's blog. It is just so wonderful. I cannot thank you enough for this incredible conversation and all your wonderful passion and just the teacher takeaways. I, f- I feel I'm so inspired. So thank you. Well, and I'm so appreciative. And because this is such a wide topic, can can I have you come back? Can we focus on like a specific teacher? Like, do you want to just do like really sure. in depth? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. We could do like, that'd be great. Be, well, I, I've often contemplated like doing drunk history, but with vocal pedagogues. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that, that, that could be its own podcast, my friend. <laughs> drunk vocal history with Justin. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to, I want to be a guest a participant. <laughs> oh, well, thank you, Justin, so much for this conversation. And uh, we will talk to you soon again. Wonderful. Wonderful. A very special thank you to Justin Peterson for that fabulous conversation. Next week on the podcast, my special guest is a voice teacher, podcaster, author, studio owner, course creator, entrepreneur, John Henney. We are discussing his new book, Teaching Contemporary Singing. If you are working with students who want to perform contemporary commercial music, please tune in next week. And a one last friendly reminder, the Happy Singing Teacher Box is back in stock. You can get all our resources at a discounted price and free shipping in Canada and the U.S. As always, I wish you inspired teaching and happy singing. Thank you for listening to the Full Voice Podcast. For more information and teacher resources, please visit our website at thefullvoice.com. Made by Canoe Music. Canoemusic.ca